Chapter Five, Part One of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Five, Sculptors, Part One. If background and tradition are needed for painting, how much more are they needed for sculpture? America was settled by a people entirely without sculptural tradition, for, in the early 17th century, British sculpture did not exist. More than that, to most of the settlers, art, in whatever form, was an invention of the devil, to be avoided and discouraged. So it is not surprising that two centuries elapsed before the first American statue made its shy and awkward appearance. In considering the achievements of American sculpture, we must remember that it is still an infant, that it is a lusty infant, none will deny, though some may find it lacking in that grace and charm which came only with maturity. The first man born in America who was foolhardy enough deliberately to choose sculpture as a profession was Horatio Greenough, born in 1805 of well-to-do parents and carefully educated. It is difficult to say just what it was that turned the boy to this difficult and exacting art, an unknown art, too, so far as America was concerned. But he seems to have begun wood-carving at an early age, and to have progressed from that to chalk and on to plaster of Paris. The American national habit of whittling was perhaps responsible for the development of more than one sculptor. At any rate, by the time he was twelve years old, Horatio Greenough had produced some portrait busts in chalk, and, after having tried unsuccessfully to learn clay modeling from directions in an old encyclopedia, took some lessons from an artist who chanced to be in Boston, and from a maker of tombstones got a little insight into the method of carving marble. These lessons, elementary as they must have been, were very valuable to the boy, and his work showed such promise that his father finally consented to his adopting this strange profession, insisting only that he first graduate from Harvard on the ground that a college education would be of value, whatever his vocation. So he entered college at the age of sixteen, devoting all his spare time to reading works of art, to drawing and modeling, and the study of anatomy. He had also the good fortune to meet and win the friendship of Washington Alston, who advised him as to plans of study. Immediately upon graduation, he sailed for Italy, which was, sadly enough, to be the mecca of American sculptures for many years to come. For Italian sculpture was bound hand and foot by the traditions of classism, to which our early sculptors soon fell captive. Greenough was no exception, and some years of study in the Italian studios riveted the chains. His first commission was given him by J. Fenimore Cooper. It was a group called the Chanting Cherubs, and when it was sent home for exhibition, it awakened a tempest of the first magnitude. Puritan ideas were outraged at sight of the little naked bodies. The group was declared indecent, and the bitter controversy was not stilled until it was withdrawn from view. Greenough wrote of Cooper, he saved me from despair, he employed me as I wished to be employed, and has, up to this moment, been a father to me in kindness. A singularly interesting addition to the portrait of the great novelist, famous for his enmities rather than for his friendships. The tragedy of Greenough's life was the fate of his great statue of Washington, of which we have already spoken. 
he conceived the work on a high plane as a majestic godlike figure enthroned beneath the dome of the capitol at washington gilded by the filtered rays of the far-falling sunlight perhaps it was too high but on its execution greenough labored faithfully for eight years it is the birth of my thought he wrote i have sacrificed it to the flower of my days and the freshness of my strength its every lineament has been moistened by the sweat of my toil and the tears of my exile i would not barter away its association with my name for the proudest fortune that avarice ever dreamed it will be seen from the above that greenough's epistolary style was florid and grandiose in the extreme but no doubt there was a foundation of sincerity beneath it a bitter disappointment awaited him the ponderous figure reached washington safely in eighteen forty three and was conveyed to the capital where beneath the rotunda its predestined pedestal awaited it but the statue was found too large to pass the door and when the door was widened and the great stone rolled inside the floor settled so ominously that it was hastily withdrawn it does not seem to have occurred to anyone that the floor might be braced instead the pedestal was set up outside facing the building and the statue hoisted into place it speedily became the butt of public ridicule once the fashion started no one looked at it without a smile greenough was in despair had i been ordered to make a statue for any square or similar situation at the metropolis he wrote still in his inflated style i should have represented washington on horseback and in his actual dress i would have made my subject purely a historical one i have treated my subject poetically and confess i would feel pain in seeing it placed in direct flagrant contrast with everyday life but that is exactly how it was placed and it is the incongruity of this contrast which strikes the beholder and blinds him to the merits of the work for greenough has represented washington seated in a massive armchair naked except for a drapery over the legs and right shoulder one hand pointing dramatically at the heavens the other extended holding a reversed sword it shows sincerity and faithful work and had it been placed within the rotunda would no doubt have been impressive and majestic where it stands it is a hopeless anachronism this was the first colossal marble carved by an american fronting it on one of the buttresses of the main entrance of the capitol is the second also by greenough it is a group called the rescue and shows a pioneer saving his wife and child from being tomahawked by an indian while his dog watches the struggle with a strange apathy almost with a smile like most of his other work it is stilted and unconvincing but let us remember that greenough was the pathfinder the trailblazer and as such to be honored and admired greenough's fame such as it was was soon to be eclipsed by that of a man born in the same year but later in development because he had a harder road to travel hiram powers was born into a large and poverty-stricken family while he was still a boy his father removed from the sterile hills of vermont to the almost frontier town of cincinnati ohio he seems to have little schooling but was put to work as soon as he was old enough to contribute something toward the family exchequer he did all sorts of odd jobs and soon developed an unusual talent that of modeling faces those were the halcyon days of the dime museum and there was one at cincinnati 
its proprietor chanced to hear of the boy's gift for modeling and offered him employment as a modeler of wax figures of course powers accepted for this was work after his own heart and he succeeded not only in producing some figures which resembled definite human beings but breathed the breath of life into them by means of clockwork devices which enabled them to move their heads and arms in a manner sufficiently jerky but at the same time astonishing to the simple people who visited the museum to behold its wonders emboldened by this success the young genius produced an inferno or chamber of horrors which when completed was an immense success too immense indeed for it had to be closed because of the fearful impression it made upon the ladies who fainted in their escorts arms whenever they gazed upon its terrors one is inclined to suspect that the ladies might have withstood the horrors of the sight but for a desire to prove their extreme sensibility fainting was more fashionable eighty years ago than it is to-day powers soon developed from this work a talent for catching likenesses and searching for a wider field proceeded finally to washington where he modeled busts in wax of andrew jackson daniel webster john c calhoun john marshall and other celebrities of the period from wax he naturally wished to graduate into marble and in eighteen thirty seven left america for italy never to return Greenough, then laboring away at his Washington, assisted him in various ways, and Hawthorne met him in Italy and was much impressed by him, as his Italian notebook shows. In 1843, he completed the figure which was destined to make him famous, the Greek slave. The statue was supposed to represent a maiden captured by the Turks stripped and manacled and offered for sale in the marketplace and so had a sentimental appeal which went straight to the heart of a sentimental people and overcame any antagonism which her nudity might have produced it inspired elizabeth barrett browning to a not very noteworthy sonnet clergymen gave it certificates of character so to speak and it made a sensation wherever shown and was fondly believed to be the greatest work of sculpture known to history let us say at once that it is an engaging and credible piece of work and worthy in the main of the enthusiasm which it excited the greek slave was only the beginning powers turned out one statue after another with considerable rapidity but his reputation rests mainly to-day on his portrait busts of men it is characteristic of artists that the things they do best and easiest they value least and this was so with powers his portrait busts were, in a sense, mere pot-boilers. He lavished himself upon his ideal figures, but these are now ranked as unimaginative and commonplace. Third among our early sculptors of importance was Thomas Crawford, born eight years later than Greenough and Powers, and preceding the latter to the grave by many years, yet leaving behind him a mass of work which if it shows no great imagination displays considerable poetic refinement driven to italy because it was only there that marble work could be well and economically done he lived there for some years earning a bare subsistence by the production of second-rate portrait busts and copies of antique statuary when he attracted the attention of charles sumner and with his help was enabled in eighteen thirty nine to produce his first important work the orpheus now in the boston museum 
many others followed but they were of that ideal and sentimental type very foreign to modern taste crawford was an indefatigable workman and few american museums are without one or more examples of his product in the public square at richmond virginia stands one of his most important monuments crowned by an astonishing equestrian figure of washington which he himself executed two of the subordinate statues are also his those of patrick henry and thomas jefferson and represent the best work he ever did another of his productions is the great figure of freedom which crowns the dome of the capitol at washington not unworthily by a fortunate chance which the sculptor could hardly have foreseen the bulky and roughly modelled figure gains airiness and majesty from its lofty position where its sickly sweet countenance and clumsy adornment are refined by distance it has become in a way a national ideal a part of the republic the success of these three men and the immense reputation which they attained naturally attracted others to a profession whose rewards were so exalted the first to achieve anything like an enduring reputation was henry kirk brown born in massachusetts in eighteen fourteen he early displayed some talent for portrait painting and went to boston to study under chester harding chance led him to model the head of a friend and the result was so interesting that he then and there renounced painting for sculpture naturally his eyes turned to italy but he had no money to take him there so perforce remained at home getting such instruction as he could in eighteen thirty seven at the age of twenty-three he produced his first marble bust and within the next four years had carved at least forty more besides four or five figures from all this work he managed to save the money needed for the trip to italy but after four years in the italian studios he sailed for home again on july fourth eighteen fifty six the second equestrian statue to be set up in the united states was unveiled in union square new york city and gave brown a reputation which still endures it is a statue of washington and in some amazing fashion brown succeeded in producing a work of art which in some respects has never been surpassed in america and which has served as a pattern and guide to other sculptors from that day to this it is a sincere honest and dignified embodiment of the first american brown did some notable work after that but none of it possesses the high inspiration which produced the noble and commanding figure which dominates union square we have said that it was the second equestrian statue produced in america the first may still be seen by all who on entering or leaving the white house glance across the street at the public square beyond one glance is certain to be followed by others for that statue is not only the first it is the most amazing ever set up in a public place in this country it has divided with greenos washington at the other end of pennsylvania avenue the horrors of being a national joke its author was Clark Mills, and its inception is probably unparalleled in the history of sculpture. Mills was born in New York State in 1815, lost his father while still a child, and at the age of 13 was driven by harsh treatment to run away from the uncle with whom he had made his home. Thenceforward, he supported himself in any way he could, as farmhand, teamster, canal hand, post cutter, and finally as cabinet maker. He drifted about the country, to New Orleans, and finally to Charleston, South Carolina, where he learned to do stucco work, 
and whiled away his leisure hours by modeling busts in clay. With Yankee ingenuity, he invented a process of taking a cast from the living face, and this simple method of getting a likeness enabled him to turn out busts so rapidly and cheaply that he had all the work he could do. He was, of course, anxious to try his hand at marble, and procuring a block of native Carolina stone, hewed out, with infinite labor, a bust of that South Carolina idol, John C. Calhoun. It was the best bust ever made of that celebrated statesman, and was the beginning of Mill's good fortune, and of the sequence of events which resulted in his statue of the hero of New Orleans. For his Calhoun attracted much attention, and secured him other commissions. Among them, one for the busts of Webster and Crittenden. To get these, he was forced to go to Washington, and there he met the Honorable Cave Johnson president of the Jackson Monument Commission, which had got together the funds for an equestrian statue of that old hero. Johnson suggested to Mills that he submit a design for this statue. As Mills had never seen either General Jackson or an equestrian statue, and had only the vaguest idea of what either was like, he naturally felt some doubt of his ability to execute such a work. But Johnson pointed out that this was only modesty and so Mills finally evolved a design which the commission accepted. Then he went to work on his model, and executed it on an entirely new principle, which was to secure a balanced figure by bringing the hind legs of the horse under the center of its body. Congress donated for the bronze of the statue the British cannon which Jackson had captured at New Orleans, and after many trials and disheartening failures, it was finally cast hoisted into place, and dedicated on the 8th of January, 1853. The whole country gazed at it in wonder and admiration, for surely never had another work of art so unique and original been unveiled in any land. Mills had balanced his horse adroitly on his hind legs, and represented the rider as clinging calmly to this perilous perch and doffing his chapeau to the admiring multitude. A delighted Congress added $20,000 to the price already paid, while New Orleans ordered a replica at an even higher figure. Absurd as the statue is, it yet must command from us a certain respect for the enthusiast who designed it. Remember, he had never seen an equestrian statue, because there was none in the country for him to see. He had no notion of dignified sculptural treatment, but he did what he could as well as he was able. Mills was the last of the primitives, for following him came Erasmus D. Palmer and Thomas Ball, the two men who, more than any others, shaped the course and guided the development of American sculpture. Erasmus Palmer was born in 1817 and followed the trade of a carpenter, but in the odd moments of 1845 he made a cameo portrait of his wife, which was a rather unusual likeness. Encouraged by this success, he practiced further and ended by abandoning his saws and planes to devote his whole time to carving portraits. But the constant strain so weakened his eyes that he was about to return to carpentering when a friend suggested that he try his hand at modeling in clay. The result was the infant Ceres, modeled from one of his own children, which reproduced in marble created a sensation at the exhibition in 1850. From that moment, Palmer's career was steadily upwards. It culminated eight years later in his delightful figure, The White Captive, reminiscent in a way of the Greek slave, but a better work of art, 
and one which stands among the most charming achievements of American sculpture. One of its wonders, too, wonder that an untrained hand and an unschooled brain should have been able to create a work of art at once so tender and so firm. Following it came some admirable portrait busts, and finally, in 1862, his Peace in Bondage. No doubt the sculptor's beautiful and adequate conception sprang from the tragic period which gave it birth for peace in bondage shows a winged female figure leaning wearily against a tree trunk and gazing hopelessly into space it is carved in high relief with great skill and insight in fact nothing finer had been produced in america with this work american art may be said to have found itself it not only raised the standard of achievement but it put an end at once and forever to the idea that study in italy was necessary to artistic success for only once did Palmer visit Europe, and then it was to stay but a short time. In fact, Italy was artistic poison for many men. Its art lacked originality and vigor, and it sapped the native strength of many of the Americans who worked in its studios. Thomas Bell was an exception to this, for in spite of many years abroad, he remained always characteristically American. He comes next to Palmer in strength and rightness of achievement. His work, like his life, was earnest and noble. Thomas Ball's father was a house and sign painter of Boston, with some artistic skill which he passed on to his son. That was the boy's only inheritance, and when his father died he undertook the support of the family, first as a boy of all work in the New England Museum, and then as a cameo cutter. From that he graduated naturally to engraving, miniature painting, and finally to portraiture. His first attempt at modeling resulted in a bust of Jenny Lind, done entirely from photographs, which had a wide vogue, for the Swedish Nightingale was then at the height of her popularity. Other more ambitious work followed, and finally, at the age of 35, he was able to realize his ambition to study in the studios of Florence. But he found the Italian environment less inspiring than he had hoped, and two years later he was back in Boston working on an equestrian statue of Washington, the first equestrian group in New England, and the fourth in the United States. He built his plaster model with his own hands and was three years getting it ready. The result was a work which ranks among the first equestrian statues of the country. Other works of importance followed among them the well-known Emancipation Group, showing Lincoln blessing a kneeling slave, which was unveiled at Washington in 1875. The years touched Ball lightly, and at 70 years of age he undertook his greatest work, an elaborate Washington monument for the town of Methuen, Massachusetts. The principal figure, a gigantic Washington in bronze, was exhibited at the Columbian Exposition of 1893 and received the highest honors of the exposition, a distinction it richly merited by its nobility of a conception and execution. Thomas Ball, indeed, set a new standard in public statuary, and one which no successor has dared to disregard. The far-reaching effects of his influence and that of Erasmus Palmer can hardly be overestimated. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by William Tomko.